For unto us a child is born. Unto us, Isaiah said, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When Zacharias saw his son for the first time, Zacharias, the forerunner of our Lord, he people tried to talk him into naming him after himself, and he said, no. His name is John. And you remember that whole account about how his name was supposed to be John. And then the father began to talk about some things his son would do. By the way, I won't make you pay any more for this. But don't you think about something with me. John the Baptist's father was a priest, wasn't he? And he prophesied. David was a king. And in Acts chapter 2, he's referred to as the prophet, or refers to a prophecy that David made. There was a man named Melchizedek who was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He had kings who prophesied, priests who prophesied, kings who were priests in all of history, in all of religious History as regards those who are following God, there is only one king, prophet, and priest. And that's Jesus. And so John's father was making some predictions, making some prophecies about his son. And the last thing he says about him in Luke chapter 2 is that he will, or Luke chapter 1 it is rather, He will guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is born. And now we're in Luke chapter 2. And verse 13 have the angels praising God and saying, and the way I learned that was, and the way you probably learned it when you were a young person, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The lesson this evening is kind of a paradox. It has to do with the one who is spoken of in terms of peace bringing a sword and saying that he did not come to send peace on the earth, but he came to send a sword. Your Bible And my Bible talks about the peace of God that passes passes all understanding. The same inspired writer would also write about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can read many times in the Bible, especially the New Testament, the portion of the Bible that we're amenable to, about how we're to have peace. Peace with each other. That new commandment that Jesus gave had nothing to do with instrumental music or church church organization. I'm not 
saying I'm favoring instrumental music or a different kind of church organization. I firmly believe that we need to sing without musical accompaniment. I believe that every congregation needs elders and deacons and preachers and Bible class teachers and the things you read about in the New Testament. Jesus said, here's how people are going to know you're my disciple, John 13, 34 and 35. Not because they don't see a piano sitting up here or an organ or because you don't call your preacher pastor. I guess I've kind of thrown a monkey wrench into that. Adam's already told you that I serve as both one of the preachers and one of the elders in Paducah, Kentucky at the Central Church. And so if somebody asks me if I'm the pastor, I say, well, I'm one of them. And they don't know what I'm talking about because they know we got two preachers. They may think I'm talking about the other guy and me who are preachers, but I'm really talking about the other three fellows who serve as elders. I don't know if Adam uses this line or not, but before I became a preacher, or before I became an elder, people would ask me if I was the pastor, and I'd say, no, I'm the pester. That's kind of what my role is, is I kind of pester people. I believe in those things. But Jesus said, not, not Jim, by this, Will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another? I don't know about you, but I need to let that sink in. I need to let people in Paducah, Kentucky know that when I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm with family. And I love my family. And we associate together and we fellowship together and we do things together as family because we love each other. My Bible also talks about peace with other people. Peter says, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. The Jim Fawn paraphrase, Cliff's Notes version of that is something like this. If there's going to be conflict, don't let it be because of you. I, I know some people. I could call some names, but I'm not going to because you wouldn't know them. And you know some people that if you call their name, I wouldn't know them. You just can't live peaceably with that person. They're not going to let you. They just have the kind of attitude that they're going to stir the pot no matter what you do. But Peter says, look, Jim. If there's going to be conflict, there's going to be disagreement, there's going to be disappointment in people, don't let it be your fault. Be a person of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so this one who talks so much about peace and has so much said about peace concerning him, he comes along and the verse that we read or part of the passage we read, he just flat said, don't think I came to send peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What in the world is he talking about? How can he be the Prince of Peace? He's John the Baptist is going to lead our feet or guide our feet in the preparation for peace and you know peace, goodwill toward men, all these wonderful things about peace. And then Jesus come along and he says, No, that's not what I came for. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Turn with me to the book of Luke. We're going to look at two or three passages 
and kind of put them all together and maybe come up with something that might be helpful in understanding this whole concept and might be helpful in understanding how I need to behave myself as a Christian. He doesn't use the term sword, at least in this translation. But in Luke chapter 12, there's a conversation, there's a scenario that begins all the way in verse 1, where it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began, watch this, he began to say to his disciples first. So here's all these thousands of people, and it sounds like he's talking primarily to the disciples. And he starts talking about various things that he wants them to know. And right in the middle of that, someone in the crowd, verse 13, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's always somebody in the crowd that doesn't get it. Jesus is talking about some very important spiritual, eternal matters. And I've got a problem with my brother about our inheritance, and I want you to settle that for me. Well, Jesus begins to deal with that in the process of dealing with that kind of quickly. He says, I, you know, I'm not the judge. And he tells the parable that we sometimes call the parable of the, the rich fool. And then he starts talking to his disciples again in verse 22 and tells them not to worry about various things. And you can read down through that. And then in verse 35, he starts talking about the necessity of, of preparation. In verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the best I can tell, Jesus doesn't really answer that. He just starts talking about being prepared. And being prepared when the Lord comes. And in that context, he says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The picture of a sword isn't there, but the picture of division is there. It's the same gospel, it's the same Lord, it's the same message, but it has two different effects. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you may want to turn there with me very quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking about his preaching. Start with verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them, went to Macedonia. Now the point is, what's he preaching? Not who he found and who he didn't find and how his heart was feeling. What was he preaching? The gospel, the good news, the Messiah, the saving message of Jesus. And you'll find in one place that he would say, I preach the same thing everywhere in every church. So Paul didn't go to 9th Avenue in Haleyville and preach one thing and go back home to Paducah and preach something else. And then go somewhere else where he's been asked to go and, and preach something else. It's the same message wherever he goes. It doesn't change it to suit the audience. But thanks be to God, verse 14, 
who in Christ always leads us. Look at this. Look at this picture he's drawing. He leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are, those who are preaching, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You get the picture? You see, when armies went out to battle back then, there was a parade at the end of the battle. They had defeated somebody. And they would have this long procession bringing back the prisoners of war and maybe the king. And, and they would have all these spices and various things that smelled really good. To the people who had won, man, that smelled great. The people following behind in the train didn't think it smelled so great. It's kind of the picture that Jesus is painting here, or that Paul is painting. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You see the idea of peace and sword. In Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 6, we're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Maybe we've gotten the wrong concept of what peace is. We'll talk about that two or three times in two or three different ways this evening. And you may have heard the illustration about a man who commissioned two different artists to paint their concept of peace. And one man came back with a picture that looked something like that. As I read the description, I looked on the internet to find a picture that kind of sort of looked like what I think they're talking about. It had to be a day like that. Blue sky, puffy clouds in the sky, the grass is green, the trees are green, everything is tranquil and serene. Everything is peaceful. That was one artist's concept of peace. The other artist turned in something that looked like that. Lightning, rain, water rushing down. Adam said there's a pointer on this thing somewhere. I don't know where it is now. Maybe is that it? Yeah. You see that right there? You might not be able to see it from where you're sitting. It's a little cutout in the rocks. And there is a mama bird hovering over the baby birds in the middle of all of that. And the artist said, that's my concept of peace. It doesn't matter what's going on around. It doesn't matter if the sun's shining or not. It doesn't matter if people like me or not, or my job is going well or not, or whatever the situation is. The kind of peace that I can find in Jesus is that kind of peace. The peace where... I know I have a relationship with Him. And I know I have a relationship with my family, my spiritual family. And you can't make me not feel the kind of peace that I need to feel to make it through this life. The sword of the Spirit, the Hebrews writer says, it can cut apart 
to the very innermost part of what we are, joints and marrow and all those things He talks about. And it will separate us from people, those who don't obey the gospel. And they may be my mom, my dad, my son, my daughter, my wife, my in-laws, my best friends. But even if that happens, what Jesus offers us is the kind of peace that Paul talked about that really does pass understanding. I want to go back and get kind of the background of Matthew chapter 10 and the other passages we looked at and kind of get what's going on here. Matthew chapter 10, where we got the text that was read to us a few minutes ago, what's getting ready to happen is that Jesus is getting ready to send the apostles out on what we sometimes call the limited commission. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Right now, you're supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you're going to be representing me And because you're representing me, they're going to think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. No. Go back to Matthew 10 with me. Look at verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. Drop down a verse or two. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end, will be saved. Guys, Jesus didn't use that accommodative language and that very casual language, but He could have said, guys, it's not going to be a cakewalk. I'm sending you to some people who are going to hate you worse than anything they hate in their life. When you go to the other passage we looked at, In Luke chapter 12, I think Peter's question is important. Is this parable for us or for us all? And I think it's important that Jesus didn't really answer the question. He just kept talking about the fact that there's going to be conflict. And there will be conflict. Jesus lived a life of conflict. He sent His apostles on that limited commission. And they were going to have, and they did have, conflict. In John chapter 20, He tells His apostles, As my Father sent me, so send I you. He didn't mention the conflict, or does He? As the Father sent me, i got conflict. So send I you. Is He hinting that they're going to have conflict? Well, as they carried out the Great Commission, we know that they did. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. When I tell you 
that we are living in a world that's increasingly hostile to the New Testament church or to anything having to do with even the Bible, whether they would be rightly called Christians or not called Christians. It used to be that we worried about being laughed at, maybe jumped over for promotion at the job or... Somebody just doesn't want to talk to us because they think we're too goody two-shoes or whatever. Have you seen pictures? I don't want to see them, but somehow they pop up on Facebook once in a while of people who wear the name Christian, whether they wear it correctly or not. But they profess some kind of allegiance to Christ. They're burned alive. Have you seen those pictures? Their heads are severed from their bodies. That's overseas. Is it the same world those of you who are anywhere close to my age grew up in as far as people's opinion about Christ, His people, the church? My dad used to tell me something, and I didn't really understand what he was talking about. I kind of knew, sort of, as kind of the older generation, younger generation thing. And he would talk about Adam and his sister, and he would say, Jim, I'm really concerned about the world your kids are growing up in. I want to tell you something, folks. I am really concerned, extremely concerned, about the world that Mary Carroll and Turner and their three cousins that live in Cookville, Tennessee, I am very, very, very concerned about the world these kids are going to grow up in. How do we achieve this concept of, okay, we've got to preach the gospel. We've got to get the gospel to people. We've got to have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And still even deal with the concept of peace. Turn to Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14, I want to give you some background here, but not a whole lot. I'm looking at the clock and I'm seeing it. I don't have a whole lot of time this evening. But I want to just talk about some things that I think need to be said to me. I'm just talking to... Donna will tell you, and Adam and Leah may have been there enough to, to verify this. I am as honest as I can be about this, okay? Anytime I'm up here talking, I can guarantee you I'm preaching to this guy right here. And my philosophy is if it's going to help you, that's fine, but I'm preaching something that I need to listen to and I need to heed and I need to hear. So I need to hear what Paul writes in Romans chapter 14. He starts back in chapter 12 talking about the love that we ought to have for each other. And he talks about all those kinds of things. And verse 14, or chapter 14 begins with, well, the little heading that somebody put in my Bible is, do not pass judgment on one another. And look what he says in verse 19. So then, Jim, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I think the King James says, follow after the things which make for peace. I believe these guys have it right. Jim, you pursue what makes for peace. 
You ever heard of the Texas Rangers? I'm not talking about a baseball team. I'm talking about the state police in Texas that call themselves the Texas Rangers. And my understanding is when they got started, they didn't care where the state lines were or the county lines or rivers or anything else. If they were after you, they pursued you even into Mexico if they had to. They were going to get you. And what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul is, look, Jim, you have separated yourself from the world. You've obeyed the gospel. You're part of the church. And in that context, you need to work as hard as you can for peace and for things that build one another up. When I was younger and this stage wasn't quite as high that I might be standing on, I used to do an illustration that you can, you can figure out pretty quickly about how much harder it is to lift somebody up than it is to pull somebody down. I'd have a young person, maybe like Mary Carol Turner, somebody that's pretty young, and I'd be maybe about the height of that second step, not way up here. And I'd try to pull them up to where I was. That, that got to be a chore sometimes. I'd ask them to pull me down to where they were. That wasn't a problem. Pursue. Follow after. Work toward things that make for peace and the things wherewith we may edify, build up one another. There is in that whole concept peace with others, Peace with God. But I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about where the problem may really be with the guy I see in the mirror every morning when I'm shaving. It may be that I'm causing problems in my family. I'm causing problems in my community. I'm causing problems in the congregation where I worship because I don't have peace with me. I'm just not at peace myself. And so I need to learn some things that I can know from God's Word. I want to suggest these things to you. You may want to jot them down. You may not. But I think if I know these things, I can live with you in peace. I can live with almost anybody in peace. Number one, we've already talked about, I can know that peace does not mean the absence of conflict. It doesn't have to be a sunny day. The sun doesn't have to be shining, the clouds don't have to be floating, and the birds flying in the air, and all that kind of stuff. The storms of life may happen. But I can be at peace. And if I'm at peace, why am I going to take out anything on you if I'm at peace with myself? We lost a real dear lady at Central a couple of months or so ago. She had a disease that they could, they basically never did figure it out, I don't think. And they kept shipping her back and forth from Paducah to Nashville until finally she lost her battle with whatever it was, and the name was about that long. Donna and I were in the emergency room with her one day, one afternoon, 
brought her in there one more time or another time. And the doctor was kind of explaining to her how serious her condition was. And he was trying to paint as rosy a picture as he could. Sonny always had a smile. She was one of the most energetic people we had at Central, and she was a lot older than I am. Always had a positive outlook. In fact, her, um, her motto was F-R-O-G, frog, fully rely on God. And that's how she lived her life. For the first time in my life, I saw a tear coming out of her eye, and she told the doctor, basically, I've had a good life. I'm ready to go. I think she was honest about that. We weren't ready for her to go. But she was at peace. Even though things around her were falling apart, including her own health, she was at peace. I can know the difference between joy and pleasure. When I was the age of some of these young people sitting here, I used to listen to these guys who had suits and ties on and stood up here and they pontificated for a while. And they either said something wrong or I heard it wrong. I thought they were trying to tell me that sin wasn't fun. And I went to school with some people who were doing a lot of things that weren't right and looked to me like they were having fun. And then one day I read Hebrews chapter 11 again where Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, how's that go? Pleasures of sin. For a season. Guess what? The Bible says sin is fun. But fun and joy are two totally different things. If anything in this world can bring joy, true biblical peace and joy, then explain to me why a man told me, a man who had everything going for him, has everything he'll ever need in life, with tears running down his cheek, why did he tell me, I just want to be happy? If the world can bring joy, why did he say that? I can know. I may not be an elder. I may not be a deacon may not be a preacher, may not be a Bible class teacher. But back in Matthew chapter 10, as he sent those people out on that limited commission, that's the context where he says, even a cup of cold water is going to be noticed. You, you receive a reward for that. Let me let you in a little secret. I've been at Central almost over 15 years. I had this experience in Vianna, Illinois, where I preached for seven years, in Dexter, Missouri, where I preached for 11 years, and now at Central. You asked me in the first month at either one of those three places, give me a list of the names of the backbone of this congregation. Well, I'd get the bulletin out, and I'd read off the elders, I'd read off the deacons, and maybe some people who took part in the public worship, and I'd say, see, here's the backbone of this congregation. That may be part of the backbone of the congregation, But it may be somebody who just will write a note right when that note is needed. It may be somebody who does something and nobody else ever notices, but it really helps to keep Ninth Avenue or Central or wherever you happen to be from, it helps to keep it going. 
There's a lady in the New Testament named Dorcas. What great thing did she do? How many miracles? How many sermons? None. What'd she do? She just made, and I'm using the word just with quotation marks, she just made clothes for people. And when she died, the church thought enough of her that they sent for Peter and wanted him to come. Now, they didn't say, we want you to come and raise her from the dead. I I think the implication is there, but... Their thinking was, apparently, we can't do without somebody like that. And neither can Ninth Avenue and neither can Central and neither can any other congregation do without people who quietly behind the scenes serve and know that their act of service, their name may never be in the bulletin. Nobody may ever say anything publicly. But God sees. I I think this is huge. And I hope I'm not stepping on somebody's toes in this room this evening. But I think you're missing something if you don't know who your father is. It's been a long time since Adam and his sister were little bitty guys and gals. But I can still remember having the thought that here they are Eight months old, nine months old, year old, year and a half old, whatever. And if something happened to them, I'd never forget them. Never. Can you imagine that family in Florida that lost that little boy? The alligator? You think they'll ever forget that little boy? Uh Uh-uh. What if the tables were turned? What if when Adam was two years old, I was gone. I'd be somebody he heard about. Somebody he saw in some pictures. He wouldn't remember what my voice sounded like or what my habits were or how good looking I was or any of that kind of stuff. And there'd kind of be a hole there where I don't know where my father, I don't know who my father is. And that causes me some turmoil and Maybe that causes me to have turmoil with you. Next, I know where my family is. If you ever want a guy to talk to about the importance of a church family, you are looking at him. We moved to Paducah in 1996 to work for Fried Hardeman. And we did that for four and a half years. We saw a lot of neat people and met a lot of interesting people and had a lot of good relationships with a lot of people. But, And we had a church family, sort of. We were from Metropolis, so we went back across the river and that's where we, quote, placed our membership. But we were on the road so much that about all they got from us was our contribution. My mom died during that time. My dad died later on during... About the time we were going to quit that and start preaching at Central, Donna's parents were getting to where they needed us more and more. I want to tell you something. I'm going to be straight up with you. Ninth Avenue is not a perfect congregation. Neither is Central and neither is any other congregation, okay? Let me preface it with that. 
But if you have a church family and you are a part of that family and you know people and they know you and you love them and they love you, you've got something we ached for for four and a half years. Don't blow it. It's a whole lot more important than you'll ever know it is unless you don't have that. Ultimately, and finally, I can have peace if I know what my destiny is. A lot of people won't agree with this, but they're going to take it up with the, gospel, with the, the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may... You know what the next word is? No, not guess. That you may know you have eternal life. Now, if I know I'm going to heaven, I'm not saying I know I'm perfect. I'm not saying I know I don't make mistakes. But if I can rely on God's promises, and if I can't rely on His promises, what am I doing here? If I can know where my destiny is, what can happen to me in this life that's going to upset me? What's going to happen to me in this life that will make me want to upset you? What's going to happen in this life that will get me off course and not serve the Lord? I am not preaching once saved, always saved. I'm not saying that. I came out of a group that taught that. Now I understand there is the possibility of apostasy. But sometimes we make it sound like it's the probability of apostasy. That we know we're going to mess up. And we know we're going to go to hell. My Bible says, if I obey the gospel, if I walk in the light as He is in the light, He didn't say perfectly. Faithfully. Be thou faithful unto death, not perfect. I'll give you a crown of life. If I know that, I'll separate myself from people who do the wrong things and people who teach wrong things and all that kind of stuff, but I'll be part of a group that loves and cares and knows we're going to heaven together. Does that, does that uh, describe you? Do you know you're going to heaven? Do you know that if you were to die this evening, you'd wake up on the other side in a whole lot better place? He still says, or he's still predicted to be, prophesied to be, the Prince of Peace. Why don't you come to him right now? We stand and sing the song of encouragement.